It is, uh, it's interesting to note, for those of you who might follow such things, to look at the kind of world that we live in and see where things actually came to be the way that they are. So for example, wristwatches came from the army. First World War. The reason why they did that is because, as you probably know from watching movies and TV shows, how did people carry time with them before they had wristwatches? They had a pocket watch that was on a chain, which they found that was very, very um, ungainly and impractical when it came to wartime. And the coordination of time during battle is incredibly important. As Napoleon once said when he was asked why he lost the battles that he did, he said, too late. Timing in life is almost everything, and most certainly in war too. So the army. Next time you put your wristwatch on, think of the army. The other thing is suits, ties, shirts. This is also from the army. We call it in the army, it's called a uniform. And it's uniform because it's what everyone wears. So I know that today, by and large, we've swapped our suit pants for sweatpants, <laughs> thanks to Zoom. But there will come a time, I promise you, when you'll have to make the reversal. And your dry cleaner will be very, very happy. And so uh, the uniform is also a byproduct. Even the placement of the buttons is a byproduct of the uniformity of what people had to wear in the army. And last, but this is far from an exhaustive list, my friends, the next time you make your way back into an airport, and hopefully it'll happen soon. Sometimes I miss traveling, and when I do, I put my cell phone on airplane mode for a little while. It brings back the good old days. But when you do make your way back to an airport, you'll find, once again, that there is economy class, and there is business class. And not only that, but in other areas of the world, there is a regular entrance, and there's a VIP entrance. This also comes from the army, or from the military service. In particular, what I want to point out to you is that officers and enlisted men were not allowed to eat in the same area together. And in fact, we know that in the British Navy, that the commander of the boat was not allowed to even talk to the, um, to the, to the regular um, to, to the regular sailors. And so often what they would do is that they would ask a companion to join them for the entire duration of the ship's voyage so that they could have someone to talk to. Why is this an important story? It's an incredibly important story. Because if the British Navy did not have that policy where the commander of the boat was not allowed to talk to anybody who was of lesser rank than them, and if they weren't compelled to bring a traveling companion with them, Charles Darwin would have never written what he wrote. In the 1830s, Charles Darwin was invited by the captain of a British naval vessel that was on a scientific expedition to the Galapagos Islands. The commander's name was Fitzroy. And he looked at the five-year voyage. Sounds like a Star Trek thing. He had a five-year voyage at talking to no one. 
He didn't know Charles Darwin, but he knew his family. Charles Darwin's father had been also a pastor. He invited him on the boat. And because of that, Darwin wrote what he wrote, and now we have the ideas that Darwin wrote that fill our lives, the ideas of evolution. Survival of the fittest, all these other ideas, only because of what the British Navy put into place. Now this morning we read about the story of the creation of the world, and because all beginnings are particularly difficult, this one should be no different. There are generally two ways that people look at the story. On one hand, there are those people who look at the story of the creation of the universe, where it speaks about the world being created in six days, where God calls into light and to darkness of both the heaven and the earth, the splitting of the waters in the sky and in the ocean, of the creation of every living thing that works on the earth, including both humanity too. And there are people who look at that story and what do they see? They see it as factual. They believe that everything that is written in there is factual, that the world was created in seven days, that the dinosaurs, bones that you find, that when you go to the museums of natural history throughout the world, they believe that those dinosaur bones are not real. They believe they were planted there by God to test us. Now, there's another end to the spectrum too, right? The other end of the spectrum says that it's all a lie, that none of it is true. And therefore, because none of it is factual, on a factual basis, we know that the universe that we occupy is not thousands of years old. We know that it is billions of years old. How do we know this? Because in the 1960s, at Bell Laboratories in New Jersey on, a, on, a, on an intergalactic um, reception set, they heard the original sounds from the Big Bang. And by listening to the spaces in between the signals, they could determine how old it was or how long it was traveling through the universe for. So on one hand, we have those who see the story of creation as completely factual, and therefore, it has to be intensely studied. And then on the other hand, there are those who say that it is completely counterfactual and you have to throw it all away. And where I find myself is smack dab in the middle. You see, I see a distinction between truth and fact. Now, truth, fact, excuse me, are the kinds of things that are scientifically provable. The sun is outside. The sun, has, the sun rose this morning, you look outside your window, the sun is shining, that's fact. When the sun sets, it's nighttime, that's fact. But there is a whole range of human life that is not governed by things that are scientifically provable or verifiable. There's a whole range of human life that is filled not with facts, but with truths. If a fact is verifying whether or not the sun has risen or set, what's an example of a human truth that can't be verifiable by, by science? For the parents of the bat mitzvahs this morning, when your daughter was reading her haftarah, I looked at both of you, and I looked at your eyes, and I saw 
because I went through it too. My children had their B'nai Mitzvah. And that love and pride that you felt, that's not scientifically verifiable, but it is a great human truth of what we give to our children because we love them. Human life is filled with great truths. And so rather than taking the story of the creation at the very beginning of the book of Genesis and throwing it out, I want to share with you from the story that we read this morning two truths without which human life would be unimaginable. In other words, if this story had not been written the way that it had been written, our lives would be far more shallow and far less beautiful. Here it goes. At the very beginning, we read in the narrative that God created the world in seven days. And within all those seven days, we are told that everything in the universe was created. Both the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. The trees that grow on the ground and human beings like you and me. And I don't want you to think for a moment that the Torah is presenting itself to be a science book. Because it is not a science book. But the Torah, I believe, in telling us that God created these things. It's not that God physically created these things because we know, thanks to Darwin and other scientific processes, that these things came to being through natural processes. But when the Torah says that God willed or wished or wanted or created the things to come into being, what is it actually saying? It's saying that God wants us here. That every act of creation, we believe, is the byproduct of an act of love. And there is no thing that any human needs more to hear. That you are here because you are loved. And we know how deeply we have that need. And the very beginning of the story affirms and reaffirms for us the importance of love that is central in our lives. The other truth I want to share with you comes at the very end of the story. Some of us, most of us, are familiar with at least the broad outlines of the story of Adam and Eve, how they countermand God's one rule to them not to eat of the fruit of knowledge, and they do. And then they're thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And they, they are then turned to thrown into a life that all of us are familiar with, that we don't live in a golden cage, but we have to scratch and claw for our existence. And you, if you would ask me, was there actually a Garden of Eden? No. Was there an Adam and was there an Eve? No, there wasn't. Factually, the story is not true at all. But as a human truth, it is powerfully truthful. Because the story of the book of Genesis does not end. The Torah does not end when Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden. It is actually the beginning of the story. And the lesson that we learned from that are words that I heard from the Nobel Prize laureate and Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was speaking one evening in Jerusalem 
about 30 years ago, and I heard him tell the story, and he said the truth that we learned from this about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, committing the sin, having the Garden of Eden collapse on them and then being thrown out, and the Torah doesn't end there, is that it tells us the most important secret of human life, which is not to begin but know how to begin again. That human life, as Beckett wrote, is about failing and then failing again, but failing better. It's about understanding not merely how to start things, but understanding when things go wrong, how we begin again. And one of the great messages to all human life has been our ability to begin again. We will begin again. These unique circumstances that we live in will pass. Zoe and Morgan, you will look at pictures of your bat mitzvah and you'll remember masks. <laughs> and you'll also cherish and remember the fact that we no longer, in time, will have to wear them. The stories that the Torah tells us, while not factual, my friends, are profoundly truthful and we should cherish them. Shabbat Shalom and Mazel Tov. Everyone, please rise, page 368.